All right, well, last week, Kay said that my sermon ended the way I stopped the car, abruptly. <laughs> and so, and uh, I said, well, I was at a natural breaking point. I mean, it was just, an <laughs> and well, still. Anyway, so sorry for the abruptness of my conclusion last week. Uh, but what we're going to do today is continue that, that message. We're at the theological and the textual center of the Gospel of Mark. Okay, There are 16 chapters, little Bible trivia, and here we at the, are at the end of chapter 8, so it really is the center of the book. And Mark constructed his book well. Remember this, when the biblical writers wrote, they weren't just firing off a quick email. Okay, they pieced together their books with intentionality. They took it very seriously. And so it's no surprise that we find orderliness and intentionality evident not only in what is included, but also where it is placed. So he, right here at the center of his book, we have the theological heart of the book. Namely, the question, who do we say that Jesus is? And then it's followed up by the call of Jesus. Namely, if he is the Lord, if he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the rightful king, God's appointed ruler, then how should we follow him? What does following him look like? This is right here at the center of the book. Remember, for the first audience... For Mark's initial readers, this was no mere academic question. They were being fed to lions. They were being lit as torches. And so for them, when they would hear the words, let anyone who would follow me take up his cross, it had a certain ring to it, a certain emphasis that perhaps it's easy for us to overlook. But just as a recap from last week, Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street? Peter responds by saying, you are the Christ. And we learned that this is a very politically loaded question or statement that going back hundreds of years, people had been anticipating the coming of the Lord's Messiah and he would have a reign that would drive out all of the pagans and heathens and evildoers, and he would usher in this beautiful, wonderful bliss, this euphoric kingdom of righteousness on earth. It would be wonderful. And they longed for it. And so Jesus rapidly begins reorienting their understanding of what it means for him to be the Messiah by telling them that he must be rejected. And that he must suffer and die. And you may recall from last week that he uses two concepts that up until he put them together, no one prior to him appears to have done so. Namely, he took the Son of Man language that everyone associated with the Messiah, his favorite self-designator, the Son of Man language that we get from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where in that passage you see this heavenly being who's like a son of man and he comes and he sets up an eternal kingdom that doesn't have an ending and all nations come and bow and worship before him okay everyone loves that but then he coupled it with the must suffer part which 
Of course, we understand from passages like Isaiah 53 and other places where the Son of Man had to suffer. And then, of course, we talked last week that that word must there signifies your salvation. That is the cost of what it took for you to be saved. That there is no potential world in which your salvation was possible without the Son of Man shedding His blood. Your sin is a problem. And so Jesus had to shed his blood for your salvation even to be possible. But this is important that we get right, not simply so we can understand Christ and his identity and mission in an abstract manner. There is a direct correlation between Jesus and his path to glory and us and ours. Remember the stumbling block for Jesus' contemporary audience was that he was saying that the path to the kingdom leads down a road of suffering. They wanted the glory minus the suffering. A sign of God's blessing is victory and triumph and success. Hence, they really loved Daniel 7. But all the other stuff, oh, that got lost in the, in the periphery. Now, it is no mere academic thing for us either. Jesus and his mission to suffer first and then get glory later itself describes the Christian walk. No student is above the teacher. Remember him saying something like that? Okay, if Jesus' path on this world was characterized by suffering and sacrifice and hardship and only later comes the glory, why then do so many people think that the way the Christian life looks or should look is that we get the goods and the glory now? There is this incredibly, incredibly wicked theology that is popular. Call it the health, wealth gospel. Call it the prosperity gospel. Call it name it, claim it. It fills the Christian bookstores. Talk to any of our missionaries, any missionary, period. It is their bane in Central and South America and in Africa and in South Asia. And it comes from the U.S. And it says that God's will for all of you is financial and physical health and prosperity right now. And a sign of your faithfulness is naming that blessing and claiming it And so if you have any poverty, if you have any sickness, it's a sign of your lack of faith. It's a sign of your lack of blessing. It turns the kingdom of God, frankly, into a giant Ponzi scheme. I have read case files of people suing those 80s and 90s popular health wealth preachers where they gave their money and every time they would give thousands of dollars they were told, oh, give a little more and they drove themselves into bankruptcy 
thinking, oh, if I just give a little more, I'll get the blessing. I'm demonstrating my faithfulness to give and give. Oh, when's the blessing going to come? We had missionaries come here a few months ago talking about how it's their bane in Africa and they're being told, oh, if you believe the Christian message, your chickens won't die. And your baby won't be stillborn. Oh, Jesus said we're going to have an abundant life and that's what we're supposed to have. I think we need to radically redefine what Jesus meant by an abundant life. Because if any man would follow me, let him take up his cross. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said at the very beginning of that classic work, The Cost of Discipleship, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Understand that when Jesus says, this is what discipleship, if you want to be my disciple, then you're going to have to be like me. And you're going to have to take up your cross. He doesn't mean it figuratively. He's not being cute saying, oh, in life we all have these difficult things that we have to tolerate and bear with. You know, we all have a cross to bear. He doesn't mean it like that. He meant it in the way the original audience would have meant it. He's telling them, you must walk the road that leads to your death. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and die. That's hard. That's uncomfortable. And he knew it was uncomfortable. Now, in our congregation, in our tradition, we don't really suffer from health, wealth, gospel. Okay, we understand that Jesus did not promise everyone your best life now. Or do we? How many of us will say, after receiving some favorable providence, oh, I'm blessed? As opposed, what happens if you lose your job and your spouse suddenly has a brain aneurysm and they're dead on the floor? What does that mean? Am I cursed? Do we not struggle with thinking that material, physical benefits amount to God's blessing, whereas hardship and lack are synonymous with his cursing? Maybe in the midst of your affliction, in the midst of your suffering, maybe that is right in the center of where God wants you to be and you're at your most blessed state then. Maybe, just maybe, the blessings and things that we think are so sure indicators of God's favor, what if, just what if, it's simply a pacifier? You want to be earthly-minded? Well, pacify yourself with earthly-minded things. What if, just what if, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, what does it mean what does that mean to deny yourself and take up your cross? What he's inviting us to is a new identity guided by a new purpose towards a new end. A new identity guided by a new purpose oriented towards a new end. You see, when he says deny himself, 
we must deny ourselves. He's referring, he's making reference to that incredibly strong pull that each of us has towards the realization of our own will. Don't each and every one of us want our will to be done? We all have different ways of expressing ourselves. Some are more passive-aggressive, others are just more in-your-face. But don't we all struggle with the desire to have our will done on earth? We do. And Jesus is saying, to deny yourself means that you have to set aside that old sense of ego with all of its focus on the pursuit of what you want to happen. Deny yourself. And then take up your cross. Well, he was drawing reference to the Roman instrument of execution. He's calling us to do that which we would normally and naturally be abhorred by. And go someplace that we would normally and naturally be very reluctant to go. If someone said to you, hey, come up here on the gallows. Stand up here over this, over this trap door and put your neck in the noose. You would be a little hesitant, wouldn't you? But that's exactly what Jesus is saying. If you would save your life, you must lose it. And if you go about trying to save your life, you will lose it. Did I say that backwards? If you lose your life, you save it. And if you try to save it, you lose it. It's the paradox of the kingdom. It's the paradox. It's the paradox of his own mission. How do you win Jesus by losing? Again, we see that Jesus and his mission is the prototype for us. But why is Jesus so down on us being ourselves? Why does he say you have to deny yourself? It's like, hey, stop being you. It's like when Kay gets mad at me and she'll say, stop being you, Ben. Who am I supposed to be? Surely I'm not the only one who says, quit being you. Right? <laughs> but what, what, what's he so down on that for? Why do we have to deny ourselves? I mean, am I really that bad? Are you really that bad? That we have to, all of our dreams, hopes, aspirations, priorities, agendas, we have to like, kill it? And that's really what he's saying, isn't it, here, right? What's so bad about that? Well, actually, everything. The pursuit of self. The desire, that intense burning we have to realize and express ourselves and to have our dreams brought forth and realized. That is at the center of every conflict. In your marriage, in your church, in your country, in your world. People asserting themselves over and over. It's the source of your internal conflict. Even like Paul in Romans 7. There's, he knows what is the right thing to do. He knows what God wants. But then there's this desire inside himself. And so he's waging war in himself. Do you ever feel torn inside? I'm sure you do. 
the pursuit of ourselves. It's simply the symptom of the problem. We want to be like God. It goes back to the fall. You will be like God. And we all want to be like God. And so we have this conflict. It's like watching two male sheep batten their heads. We went through the Badlands one time, and, and we were the only ones there. It was awesome. Go through the Badlands in November. You'll be the only ones there, okay? You'll be the only ones in South Dakota there anyway. But they were at least a mile off, and you could hear their heads cracking. It was incredible. But we're like that in our homes. Teens battling with parents. Toddlers battling the world. Husbands battling wives. Pastors battling elders. Congregants battling officers. Citizens battling... I mean, it's just on and on, right? Because I want my way. Sin is antisocial. Sin breaks down the possibility of meaningful and right relationship in any and every sphere. This is why Jesus says you have to die. You have to kill that. What we have to see is that when Jesus says to deny yourself, He really is wanting you to focus on you. Oh, I am so good at thinking about the problems everyone outside of me has. But I have to deny myself. I don't have to make you deny yourself. You don't have to make me deny myself. You have to deny yourself, and I have to deny myself. Until we see that we are the problem. We're never going to lay down our arms. And as I was thinking about that, I thought about that famous incident. In 1908, the London Times inquired, sent out inquiries to a number of famous authors wanting some op-eds for their paper. And they asked the question, what's wrong with the world? And one of the people they sent an inquiry to was G.K. Chesterton. And his response is famous. He replied, the question, what is wrong with the world? His response, dear sirs, comma, new paragraph, I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Now, of course, a couple years later, he wrote a book entitled, What's Wrong with the World? So he had more to say, but for the purpose of the op-ed, it makes a profound point until we realize that you and I are the problem, and that the problem is in here. We're never going to see the significance of what Jesus is saying when he says, deny yourself. Everything that you think is important, your ego, your dreams, your aspirations, crucify it. That is getting in the way. And of course, that's impossible. Jesus knows full well that you and I, we love our sin. It is so precious to us. I mean, we love our sin so much that we will keep doing it even as we know it's killing us. 
I have seen and talked to and tried to shake men who know that their porn addiction is ruining their family. And they can even articulate that, and they won't stop. People who are so addicted to gambling that they lose everything, and they know they got to, and they can't, won't stop. Our sin is precious to us. Insert Gollum in quote, you know, my precious. I have to have it. Our sin is like that. Which is why this is implicitly teaching the doctrine of total depravity. We so love our sin that when we look at a demand of Christ, deny yourself. Take up your cross and march to your death. That seems ridiculous because that's a threat. That is an existential threat to everything that I value. You see, people ask me, how can God make someone do whatever to go to hell? God doesn't do anything to make you go to hell. If he stands there and watch you do your own thing, you'll go to hell. Because you love your sin and you will never obey this. You will never deny yourself if God leaves you alone. Because your sin is too precious. John 6.44 No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And then the good news is in the next verse. All whom the Father teach, teaches will come to me. If God touches your life, and gives you a new heart, then all of a sudden you're able to see this pursuit of self with all of its dreams and agendas. It's actually causing the problem. And when Jesus says, deny yourself, he's actually trying to rescue me. Will we do it? Will you in response to Jesus, look at your life and say, you know what? I'm pursuing my own agenda. I'm making decisions based upon what I think are in the best interest of me. And I'm trying to get the other people around me to make what I think is right happen for me. Will you? When Jesus says, let him deny himself. He's inviting you to be free from all that. Isn't it tiring? Isn't it tiring, the conflict, the struggle of having to be right, of having to win, of having to make others conform to your will? Isn't it tiring? Wouldn't it be nice just to sit back and be and breathe the free air? That Jesus offers all this stuff, my dreams for the future, my desire for a great big portfolio of stocks and bonds and uh, all this stuff. Does it really matter? In heaven, I won't need it. In hell, I'd be so miserable being tormented by fire that it won't matter there either. 
Remember Jim Elliott? I've quoted him many times. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus offers you freedom. He offers you release and relief. But you have to die to receive it. Will you? Will you receive it? Or will you say, it's too precious. It's too precious. I can't let it go. And of course, we all know that what Jesus says is shocking. That's why he goes on to say, if you're ashamed of me and my words, if this is too extreme for you, if it's, if it's not to be spoken of in polite company, if, if what I'm saying is of such scandal to you that you don't even want to be identified by it, then what goes around comes around. And when I come in glory, because the day of glory does come, I then will be ashamed of you. He likens us to having to make a choice. We either find ourselves acceptable in the sight of the one who is eternally glorious, or we find ourselves acceptable to a perverse and adulterous generation. And he uses those words intentionally to underscore how biblically unfaithful and immoral this world is. And once again, he uses the word generation, a people group defined typically within the parameters of an age, defined by certain characteristics. Okay, So the millennial generation, the baby boom generation, it's, it's not only people of a certain age, but it's also the associated characteristics that go in into being that. Do you want to be defined by the ethos of the age? Or do you want to be defined by the ethos of the kingdom? Whose values are more important to you? Will you identify with Christ and sacrifice your own ego for his purpose? Or will you say, no, it's precious to me precious to me and in the end lose everything remember that when Christ offers life it's life abundant and life abundant does not mean that your bank account is stuffed your Benz or your Bentley or your BMW or your Austin Martin he doesn't mean that you get all that what he means is that you walk in the midst of whatever circumstance or trial or tribulation you have, knowing that you are right in the sight of God's plan, that you are right where God wants you to be, and that you have the joy and the peace of knowing that the day is coming when everything gets made right. So it enables you to look at scorn and ridicule and tragedy through a different lens. Will you sacrifice your own agenda for the agenda of Christ? The call to discipleship is the call to come die. And it's not a macabre statement. It's a statement 
inviting us to let go of the self. I want to close with this quote from C.S. Lewis. He, uh, he wrote this wonderful book. It's actually the transcripts of, an, of radio, a series of radio addresses. It's called Mere Christianity. He delivered a series of radio addresses during the Second World War. And during the Second World War, people wanted to know about Christianity and tragedy and, and bombs falling from the sky and blowing up half of London kinds of arouses a spiritual hunger in people. And so he, the first half of the book is about basically uh, an argument for God's existence. But then the second half of the book is moral stuff. How does, should Christians live? And I want to read to you just the last half paragraph from the book. He writes this. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death. Death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day. And death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will only find in the long run hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. If you haven't read Mere Christianity, I encourage you to do it. Christ offers life, but you have to get yourself out of the way. Are you willing to take up your cross and follow him? Or do you want to sit back and insulate yourself from anything that would threaten your ego? Let's pray.